The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. All right. Well, like I said in the first session, tonight is about theological convictions and uh, how it relates to spiritual transformation. And I think the title in your program is He Breaks the Power of Canceled Sin. And so we're going to talk about the redemptive achievements of Christ as really the grounds of personal transformation and therefore the grounds of any kind of spiritual care that we're going to provide to others. If, if we want to help people grow and change, we need to help them understand the redemptive achievements of Christ in their life. What is this so great salvation that you have because of what Christ has done? So um, it's, I think it's far too common in the church in America, in the Western world really, where we're, we're generally uh, financially and socially and, and practically pretty stable it's very easy in a comfortable uh, social context like what we live in to kind of just plateau, to just be comfortable, to not feel like we have to fight for change and, and fight for progress. And so that trickles into our spiritual lives, I think. It trickles in with just a, a failure to have the same kind of zeal, the, the same kind of purposefulness, the, the same kind of intentionality uh, about our spiritual lives as, as maybe we even do in, in other areas uh, of our life. As counseling has become more and more a, a part of my personal ministry, I've noticed a pattern with a lot of professing Christians who are struggling with sin. They've, they've developed what I've kind of come to call a passive defeatist attitude. They just feel so defeated. They talk so defeated. Growth is stunted their, their zeal is cold. They feel like giving up. And, and even if they don't say it, it it's, it's like their, their lives project a sort of, is it really worth it? The Christian life is hard. Is it, is it really worth it? I, I, I sin over and over and over again. It seems like I can't get past this. And, and, and the, the statement I... I Quoted in the first session, you know, I've asked God to take this desire away, and He, and he hasn't done it. And that, I think, kind of grows out of it. Well, lead us not into temptation is different than that. That's not exactly what Jesus is talking about when He says, pray this, this way. And then another way that I hear it is, are, are Christians who say something like this, like, you know, uh, I, I am so sinful to the core. This is like depravity, kind of like, Twisted a little bit here. Like, I believe in total depravity. Don't get me wrong. Like, we're, we're sinners through and through, but they take this, this true doctrine of depravity and they say, I'm, I'm so wretched that even now, as a Christian, even my best efforts are tainted by sin. And I, I've heard him quote Isaiah 64. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And they apply that to their to their daily struggles, and even their daily victories, that even, even my victories feel like failures because I'm just so awful. Well, that, that passage in Isaiah 64, it's not talking about genuine believing people who are striving to please God. 
and overcome sin. It's about unsaved, self-righteous Israelites who are living in sin, but continuing to offer sacrifices in the temple. That was the issue that, that the Lord was rebuking there through, through Isaiah. It's not just a general reference to indwelling sin or, or to, to depravity. And we, we really would do well not to quote it for that purpose, I believe, because it contributes, I think, to this passive, defeated attitude that can, that can just so easily take over. I, I think a biblical perspective on why we sin and how to battle indwelling sin is way more triumphant than that. It should, it should be fueled by an understanding of the victory that is already ours in Christ and not, not be weighted down by this feeling that I'm defeated before I even begin. And so... He breaks the power of canceled sin, the redemptive achievements of Christ as the grounds of of our transformation and of ministering uh, the word with care to others. Let's gird up our minds for the action and and the victory over sin that God's called us to have as Christians. And we're going to take a, a, I'm not not sure if I can call it a dive, because we're going to try to go through Romans 6 and 7. Buckle up. It's going to be more like a jet tour I guess, through Romans 6 and 7 to see the greatness of the salvation that we have in Christ. Just over 158 years ago, the Civil War effectively ended when Robert E. Lee surrendered with his troops to the Union's Ulysses Grant in Virginia. The Texans kept fighting, some of you might know, but they like guns down there. That's beyond the scope of my discussion and the illustration today, so let's leave the Texans out of it. With the end of the Civil War, though, came the abolishing of slavery. Abraham Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation two years earlier in 1863, and that effectively made every slave in in the United States a free man. In principle, on, on paper, slavery was abolished. And both of those things were great and life-changing events in our, our nation's history, for which we, we should be thankful. But for many of the older slaves in this country at that time, it was such a stark contrast to the life that they had known for so long that many of them found it very difficult to leave the plantations in the South. And many of them stayed. They stayed on those plantations, and they continued to work, they continued to, to live like slaves and to look like slaves and to work like slaves, though they had been declared free. Understandably, many of those former slaves lived out their lives, even still fearing whenever they would see the old master come in their way, continue to experience the emotional trauma of being afraid to be beaten or sold, though they, they couldn't be sold, but the fear was rooted deep inside them. Those, those experiences of emancipated slaves, I think, provide an unfortunate but apt illustration of a very real spiritual fact. It is possible to live like a slave to the past in your experience, even though you are not really a slave in the present. 
You, you can be a slave in your feelings and in your responses when actually in respect to your status and to your position, you have been completely emancipated and set free. And I think that's an apt illustration that should help us as we jump into Romans 6 to, to understand it a little bit better. Now let's, let's set the context for, for Romans chapter 6. And if you have a Bible, you can, you can turn there. And I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard. Um, I failed to even ask what y'all use here. Um, but our church switched to the ESV and I'm the last holdout, I think. Um, I'm, a, I'm an old dog. No new tricks. Unless it's a Lindy Hop move. Then I'm game for giving it a try. Uh, but I'm sticking with the NASB. That's my story. Um, so the, the background for Romans 6 is the gospel message, right? I mean, that's, that is Romans, right? So Paul's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Chapter 1, verse 17, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, from one degree of faith to another, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. That little phrase, the righteous man shall live by faith, is as good a summary of the gospel as there is, I think. It, it, it says basically that a man who is right with God is right with God only by faith, only by believing that God can make him right with himself, and has made him right with himself, not because of him, but because of the merits of Christ's work, which is what he's putting his faith in. A justified man receives eternal life only by believing and trusting in the finished work of Christ on his behalf. The righteous man shall live by faith. The man who is right with God shall receive that eternal life only by believing in Christ and Christ alone. Notice Paul says the gospel reveals not the righteousness of man, but the righteousness of God. How does it do that? Well, it reveals the way that sinful men can be redeemed and joined to a holy God without that holy God compromising his own righteousness the God in in whose presence sin could never dwell. How does he do it? Well, he does it through the work of Christ. The rest of chapter 1 and all the way through chapter 3, Paul is just proving to us all from the Scripture the universal sinfulness of man and our absolute inability to make ourselves right with God through our own effort or good works. No man could ever keep the law of God anyway. So the only way for us to be right with him is for God himself to make a way for us to be right with him, but he has to do that in a way that doesn't compromise his own justice and his own holiness. How does he do it? He describes it at the end of, end of chapter 3, after telling us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Kind of a, a, a let me sum it up again for you. Uh, but we are then, 24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He has satisfied the wrath of God by shedding his own blood, by dying the death we deserve, 
and that is to be received by faith, he says. This, all of this, this plan that he's just described, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. He gives us a substitute to to pay the penalty for what we deserve so that he can be both just but also the justifier. And we can't work for it, he goes on to say in in verse 4 of chapter 4, to the one who works, if if you were working for it, to the one who works, his wage is credited not as a favor, not as grace, but as what is do. If you work for it, it's no longer grace. It would violate the whole concept of salvation by grace to say we, we could work any, any way or anyhow to, to earn it. That's the essence of the gospel, that the forgiveness of sins is a completely free salvation offered to all who will believe. And it, it's right to ask the question, as so many people do, in an objecting kind of way, there can't be a free salvation offered to everyone. What about mass murderers or pedophiles or people who steal the life savings of, of an elderly woman? It's, it's often the case that hearts and minds that have been given over like that rarely repent and believe. But man, doesn't Saul provide an example that it happens? The, the murderous, hateful Saul with letters of intent to go to Damascus and kit basically imprison and murder Christians, gets gloriously converted on that road to Damascus. Why? He didn't do a thing, did he? Why? Because God is just and the justifier of those who put their faith and trust in Christ and seeing and hearing the voice of a gracious God in the person of Christ on that road transformed Saul's heart and life. And proves what chapter 5 ends with, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin abounds, grace mega abounds, it says. And that's, that's the beauty and the richness and the fullness of the gospel. There's a sense in which the more a man sins, the more they may be forgiven, right? Saul certainly understood that. The chief of sinners forgiven. And the more a man is forgiven, the more God puts his grace on display through the gospel. And, and guess what? No man, no matter how sinful, King Saul, or not King Saul, Saul in the New Testament, or anyone else cannot exhaust the grace of God. That's how amazing and how abounding the grace of the gospel is and it's, it's no wonder then that Paul would foresee that someone's going to object to preaching this, this kind of message. I mean, it's scandalous, right? It, it really is scandalous. And he knows people are going to say, no, wait just a second. And, and so he asks the obvious question. He, he, he predicts what someone's going to ask who has heard this message in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? I know what you're, that's his way of saying, I know what you're going to ask me next. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? 
And, and he answers it. May it never be. Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Notice his answer for why we're not to continue in sin is that we are dead to sin. How shall he who's dead to sin still live in it? That's what we're going to dig into here. Chapter 6 and 7 lay some, some theological foundations for, for why spiritual transformation, why change in our lives isn't just possible, it should be inevitable. Change isn't just possible, it should be inevitable. Even though I think chapter 7 tells us it's still going to be difficult. So let's talk about our union with Christ. If, if there were one topic that I would describe here in uh, chapter 6, it's our union with Christ. There are three emphases to be considered as we meander our way through chapter 6. And they are this, that Paul tells the Christian there are some things that you must know. There are some things that you need to consider or, or embrace. And then third, there are some things that you need to present or, or do, if you want to just put it very, very simply. As Paul answers this, this question and unfolds theological realities that are important to this do- topic of, of change, uh, he uses this word no in verse 3 and verse 6, verse 9, again in verse 16 in some fashion. What are the various things Paul's telling us here that we should know and remember and ultimately apply? In the context, remember, he's asking the, answering the question, this is how it begins, should a believer continue in sin so that grace must increase? And his answer, we saw it, may it never be. The strongest way to say no in the ancient Greek of the, the New Testament because how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, if you only remember one thing from this, I want you to remember that statement. You are dead to sin. You are already dead to sin. Right now. That's, that's what Paul says about the Christian. We, we can't keep on sinning because we've died to sin. Verse 2. Now, that's not the only, only place he says it, actually. But please remember this. Because that is a hope-giving truth. I'm dead to sin. So, if I were just to put it super simply, and we're going to unfold it a little bit for a moment, say, when sin comes knocking on my door, I mean, I'm going to punch it in the nose and slam the door in its face. Because I'm dead to you. Like, we use that phrase, you're dead to me. That's kind of a joking moniker when someone does something we don't like or or but we can like literally say it to sin you're dead to me i'm dead to you because of our union with christ verse three do you not know here he says there's some things we need to know we need to know this remember this do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into christ jesus have been baptized into his death he He's referring to what our physical baptism symbolizes, our, our union with Christ, our being immersed and into our relationship with Him. And being joined and immersed into Him, we've been joined and immersed into His death, a death to sin and a death for sin's consequences. And not just joined and immersed into the reality and benefits of His death, 
but also joined and immersed into the realities of his resurrection. Verse 4 and 5. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly, oh, I like that word, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He, he's reminding us as, as a Christian, in the mind and eye of God, he sees us crucified, buried, and resurrected again in order to walk in newness of life. Not just in heaven. That, that's what he's calling and empowering today in, in the here and now. And, and why does he expect that? Well, he says we should know that already. But the way he goes on to address the reason why we should be walking in newness of life implies that he, this should be common knowledge to you. Look at verse 6. Knowing this. Like he he's, keeps coming back to Do you not know? Knowing this. You should already know this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. We're going to come back to that word. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin, knowing this we we should know he says the correct question is do you know this like are are we are we really knowing that are am i knowing it remembering it appropriating it into my christian life who's the old man here that he's referring to knowing this our our old self or our old man was crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with the old man is the person that we were apart from christ before salvation. It is the real person we were when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. When we were only in Adam, but not a new man in Christ. It was the person we were when we were still taken captive to do the will of the devil. When we still had blind eyes and a hard heart. That man that wanted to live life totally independent of God, has been crucified. That man who wanted to, wanted to live totally independent from God is dead. He's not, get this, I'm, I'm, talking, I'm just telling you what Paul says. He doesn't say it's in the process of dying because the text says that old man has been crucified and buried. He, it would be inappropriate, even a God-given metaphor to bury someone who is only in the process of dying, right? That sounds like a Monty Python movie or something. <laughs> the old man is dead. These are indicative statements in, in this passage that are, are statements of truth. The old man was crucified so that our body of sin might be done away with, or your, your ESV price is brought to nothing. What is our body of sin? Our, our body of sin is that part of us where sin still dwells. And the phrase body of sin in this context is used, I think, synonymously with the term flesh. So it's just two ways of referring to the same thing, the body of sin or 
the flesh. The old man is dead, and the body of therefore the, this body of sin, that little piece of you where sin still dwells, has no authority over you. It has been done away with, or ESV, brought to nothing, rendered inoperative. There's, there's a bunch of ways you can translate that word. Uh, destroy it and abolish or nullify or remove its power. It's a, it's a great, rich word. And, and yet we know, despite our flesh, our body of sin having its authority completely nullified, it's still there. That booger is still knocking at the door, isn't it? It's still knocking at the door or it's still whispering in our ear, right? And, and this part of us still remembers the ways in which that body of sin and the flesh brought us so much. Well, Paul's going to tell us, how much did it really ever get you? Right? Verse 21. What benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? It, the flesh is whispering in our ear, you're missing out, old friend. And despite that reality that he has no authority over us, that his power has been abolished, we hear those whispers. Remember our opening illustration about slaves in the Civil War. Every time we listen to the urgings of the flesh, that body of sin, it's as though we are putting ourselves under the authority and the power of a master who has absolutely no power and authority in our lives whatsoever. That's what we do every single time. And Christians, we can, we can live with that defeatist attitude. I, I, I just can't do it. Sin is too hard to resist. And when we live like that, we're living like those slaves that were free, but just kept serving the interests and meeting the demands of a master who had no authority over them. But Paul here tells us, no, you've been united to Christ in the likeness of his death. You've crucified the old man that's been buried. You've risen again to walk in newness of life. The old man is dead, and he tells us to believe it, right? And that's that second word that keeps recurring in here is consider. We need to consider it, believe it, embrace it. Look at verse 11. Even so, because all these things are true, even so, please hear, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the thing, isn't it? I keep telling you, Paul's telling you, you are dead to sin, and you're like, yeah, I think. And Paul says, I get it. <laughs> I'm living the same life in the same sinful world with the same tug of the flesh that you are. But he says, consider it. Like, believe it. Embrace it. Let's appropriate it. You're dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, in the same way that you know Christ has died and risen and lives again, to the same degree that you are certain that Christ has died and was buried and has risen again, as sure as you're sure about those things, be sure about this as well. That you are dead to sin and alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Now, it's, it's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard to believe that he's actually saying it this definitively because most of us are having trouble concluding it's true based on our practical experience with sin. Anybody? That's it, right? Based on our practical experience, it's hard to believe it, and I think that's why Paul says you just, just got to reckon it to be true. You just got to believe that that power is in your spiritual account. This is an accounting term. I'm a numbers guy, so I like that. That power, that reality has been credited to your spiritual account, Christian, so believe it. Now, we know the, the effects of sin. Why is it if the old man is dead and the body of sin, the flesh, has been nullified, rendered inoperative, done away with? Why do, I, why do we still find ourselves sinning so much? Well, it's, it's like I said, he's, sin is there. It, it's, it's the body of sin, the flesh. Somehow sin is camping in here. I don't know how. I mean, if I knew how, it's a spiritual reality. I don't think it's a physical reality. Or I would stick a needle in me a thousand times and try to suck that right out of there. I'm going to find the flesh. It's in there somewhere. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a big old... I don't even know what those needles are called. But anyway, it's not a physical reality. It's indwelling sin. And I know, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's how I know that what remains of sin in me is somehow tied to my physical existence, somehow, because if I'm absent from the body, I'm present with the Lord. And so it is, it is as though there is this immaterial principle of sin that can whisper in my ear, that can draw me away, that can try to sell me rotten goods, even though it has no authority to command anything of me, even though it can't make me do anything. I, I think it's hard to grasp for, for us uh, often because we just we read chapter 6 and some of it just almost doesn't seem believable. But I want to listen to, you, to, to two quotes about this. One by David Needham who says, What could be more frustrating than being a Christian who thinks himself primarily a self-centered sinner, yet whose purpose in life is to produce God-centered holiness. What could be more frustrating than thinking you're, you're only a self-centered sinner? And, and I think that's what Paul is getting at in this passage. You are not primarily a self-centered sinner. You are dead to sin and alive to God. Reckon that to be true and, and let the reality of it become your reality. John MacArthur says, until a believer accepts the truth that Christ has broken the power of sin over his life, he cannot live victoriously because his innermost being doesn't think it's possible. We have all been there, yes? We have all been there. That whatever it is for you, that besetting sin, I I know what mine are. And last time I, I preached, my son-in-law preached after me and he confirmed it for everyone. <laughs> that was awkward. But we, we all have this besetting sin, that thing that we struggle with. And it, it's different for all of us. You're right? you, you, you could be impatient. You get angry quickly. You could be prone to, to laziness. You could be prone to lust. You've struggled with pornography off and on for years and years. The list could go on and on and on because there's a hundred of us in here. 
I like what MacArthur says. Believe in your heart that you have victory over sin. God has broken the power of sin over your life. That's what makes 1 Corinthians 10.13 true. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Of course you're going to hear the same whisper of the flesh that every man hears, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. We can overcome, we can endure every temptation that sin, the devil, and our bodies and the world could possibly throw at us because we are dead to sin and alive to God. Then verse 12 and 13, there's a big therefore. All right, right? Know these things. Consider these things or embrace them. Reckon them to be true. And therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's the third thing. He tells us to know some things. He tells us to consider some things, believe it, embrace it, reckon it. And now he tells us to present, to present ourselves to God. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body if you know these things. Now, I like the fact, look, first of all, that Paul says, he says, very specifically, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Paul Paul would not be exhorting us along those lines if it were impossible for, for sin to exercise some degree of rule in our mortal body, Right? In other words, it's possible for us to know, at least for a time, the experience of sin being pervasive. So he wouldn't tell us to stop letting that happen if it were impossible for it to happen, though our new spiritual condition and power and status means we can overcome it, right? So it should not become our character in an absolute sense, an unhindered practice, in other words, our conscience is going to be aching if that's happening. But notice, secondly, and, and maybe more importantly, notice what he does not does not say here. He doesn't say, do not let sin reign in you. He, he, he couldn't have said, don't let sin reign in, in you, and just left it at that, because it, it would have confused what he'd already said about who you are. Who are you? You are truly, in your heart of hearts, the truest you hates sin and loves righteousness. The the true you in your heart of hearts is dead to sin. He's already told us. And so sin can't reign in the real you because even when sin begins to reign in your mortal body, the real you is jumping up and down and saying, I hate this. That's the real you. And when you experience the pangs of conscience, that that is evidence of God's grace and power and presence in your life. That's why Paul, when he gets to Romans 7, he says these things that make him sound like he's like new age or something, right? Verse 17 of Romans 7. So now, 
No longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I mean, I think that's in the DSM-5. There's a diagnosis for what he just said, right? But that's not really what he's doing. Look at verse 20. If I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. What he's, what he's making reference to there is that the members of his body, that flesh, that, that body of sin that doesn't have authority, but keeps whispering in his ear and tugging him away, is hard to resist. And, and he's using it almost like it's another entity within himself, right? It kind of sounds like he's got a dual personality or something. But that's simply because he's expressing the realities of being one thing truly and fully in Christ, but having another experience as sin is tugging at his heart. But notice what he says in chapter 6, verse 17. Again, I, I love the distinction between who we truly are in Christ and the ways in which sin operates to, to defeat the, the true reality of who we are. Verse 17 of chapter 6, he says, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. He's saying, in your heart of hearts, that's who you are. Thanks be to God that your heart is so truly and fully transformed that you have become slaves of righteousness. Though that unauthoritative flesh continues to whisper in your ear. Why doesn't this so completely and and fully change who we are? Look at the end of Romans 7. Paul says in verse 21, and and this is... So, well, let me stop and and do a little summary in, in terms of why is this important for caring for one another? Let me, let me explain. You're working with someone who's depressed or anxious or is struggling with, with porn or substance abuse or outbursts of anger. And they're just feeling like, I don't know what to do. And I've tried everything. And I've asked God to take the desire away. And he hasn't done it. And there's all kinds of things that express what those quotes by, by Needham and MacArthur are saying, we need to help our fellow believers like really believe it that the power to live as slaves of righteousness is already theirs. We, we often just need to convince people that they have every right and power to punch sin in the nose and slam the door when it pulls up. Because we do truly have that power. Now, we say it, right? And we don't instantly absorb the ability, do we? It's something that we need to to do and grow in more and more and more. What Paul so so that's why understanding these theological truths are so important to cultivating a culture of care. Like, we want to be people who come alongside our fellow brothers and sisters and say, let me remind you of the victory that is yours already in Christ. That you have died to sin. That your, 
your flesh has been rendered inoperative. Stop listening to those temptations. You can rise and walk in newness of life right now. That's God's promise to you. That's God's power in you. So that's why understanding this is so important to a culture of care. Now, the beauty of getting this is that uh, you stink at it too, (laughs) right? Like we're just coming alongside each other in this struggle that is life. Just one beggar trying to show another beggar where to find the bread. And that and, and the fact that we all have besetting sins and it's just time to be transparent and open with each other and honest about how sin plagues you too in the, in the it feels like it's from the outside way, like Paul is saying. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is such a pain, right? Now, why does it feel that way? I think Paul describes it in, in Romans chapter 7, and I'm going to illustrate it for you, but look at Romans 7 verse 21. Why is it that if we really have this spiritual power and, and spiritual position, that it doesn't always feel like sin's, sin's going away, right? It st- still feels like sin is hanging on, even though the body of sin has been rendered inoperative. He says this in verse 21, Romans 7, I find then the principle or a law. It, it's the word namas. It's, it's, it's the word law. I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I got two translations in front of me. That's, I'm confusing myself with that. So I'm going to read it from the NES. I find then a law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, that's the real him, the dead to sin and alive to God man, who joyfully concurs with the law of God in the inner man. Verse 23, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of that law of sin, which is in my members. Again, he locates our sinfulness somehow in our our mortal, our mortal bodies. Why does he use this word law? There's a law inside me that is compelling me. It's that voice, that whisper, that, that knock at the door. I think he uses the word law because law is a thing that compels us to obey. That's what the law does. It's a principle that compels us to obey. We all know this experience of, of driving down the road and a police officer pulls up to the intersection you're approaching. And what do you do? You slow down every time. It doesn't even matter if you're speeding. You may be speeding. You may not be speeding. But you see the law, and it tells you to slow down, right? Which maybe tells us how you drive at other times. But don't we all, right? So that's because that's what the law does. It, it compels us to obey. It's a familiar, a familiar voice. It's a voice we know. It's a principle that we know, that we've experienced, that tells us there's something you must do. But when, when sin is that law that is in us, telling us to do things that our inner man or the law of my mind is telling me is wrong, it sounds so convincing. It does. Because that law is telling you, don't you remember 
Don't you remember how much fun we had? Do you not realize how much pleasure you're going to miss out on? Do you, are, are you not seeing how your rights are being violated? You must stand up for your rights. And it, it sounds so convincing to us because we've done those things in the past over and over and over in, in a way that has caused our body to, to like it. And, and again, that's why he locates it in the members of our body. There's this law of sin in my members. Wretched man that I am, he says. Who will set me free completely and fully and finally, in other words, from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I'm going to go back to kind of wrap this up and say, you remember what we were talking about, the Word of God training us in righteousness? That is the connection when, when we are joyfully concurring with the law of God in the inner man. When, when we're winning that war that's being waged against the law of our mind is when we're hearing the voice of God say, this, husband, is how you love and serve and sacrifice for your wife. And let me help you do that over and over and over again. But what happens when your heart is saying, I I want to do that, and your wife asks you to take the garbage out with 17 seconds left in the game, and your flesh says, don't you realize you have rights? You're going to miss out on all the joys of victory or maybe even the agony of defeat, but you're going to miss out. And you're going to be like, now it, it might not be as serious as a game. It might be something far less important. Like I was taking a nap here. Did you really have to wake me up to tell me that? It could be something far more simple. And, but what tran- transformation happens when we say, not I have a right to a nap, or I have a right to the joy of victory or the agony of defeat, whichever it is. But when we say, God, I am going to live out the truth of your word as a habit of life because you're going to train me in righteousness. And I'm going to grit my teeth right now and love my wife for the glory of God and the good of my soul so that the body of sin will stop thinking it has any authority to tell me what to do or want. And the more we do it, the more we do it intentionally and purposefully, even when we don't want to, the more we quiet and still the volume of that voice that is the flesh. And that's what character is. That's what godly character is. Godliness is growing in appropriating this power that God has given you in the face of temptation and sin and pursuing it with a heart that says, God's given me the power to live this out even if it, even if it doesn't feel good right now. And it doesn't feel good all the time, does it? Because you'll relinquish rights and you'll deny yourself pleasures. But I'm telling you, if you let the Word of God train you in righteousness, appropriating, remembering, reckoning, presenting yourselves as slaves to this kind of righteousness, you will be transformed. 
And so as a community, as a church, as a church family, as a community, helping people go, let's, let's wrestle through this stuff together. A group of three or four men having coffee uh, every other week and saying, what are the ways you're committing to serving and sacrificing for your family? Okay, well, how are you denying yourself in the process? How are you, how are you wrestling through the temptation that you're going to have to, to uh, when that happens at an inconvenient or unpleasant moment for you? And, and the husband-wife thing is just one example of a thousand, right? It's just one simple example that I've had to wrestle with my whole Christian life. So it's easy for me to illustrate that one. Okay, these, these concepts, I, I really think I could have I gone two hours on this stuff, but, or just preach till midnight, whichever you prefer. But this is all the time they gave me. So um, our capacity, our capacity for sin is a product of the flesh, this sin that still dwells in our body somehow, that unredeemed aspect of us, of us. But the realities of our so great salvation are so much bigger and more powerful to, be, to have been freed from sin and freed from its power, freed from the authority of the flesh to speak into us and draw us away. And while the position there is absolute and true and real, and we need to reckon it to be true, we need to also remember this law, like that cop at the corner telling us not to just slow down, but a different law that actually is telling us to speed up and rush headlong into sin. But there's a way that seems right to that man, that body of sin, and the end thereof is death, as the Proverbs says. So let's do battle. Let's do battle against it and put off the old man, be renewed in the spirit of mind, put on the new man, be trained in righteousness. And God uses our intentional and purposeful effort to do that because of that resurrection power to transform us into the image of Christ. And we have a duty and a call, I believe, as we're going to highlight in the morning, to be, to be helping one another toward that end as fellow Christians and certainly brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, we, we are so grateful. Your, your redeeming power is amazing. It's bigger uh, it's bigger than we know. We're, we're not even plumbing the depths fully of it. God, we want to understand it more deeply. We want to understand it uh, in a way that gives us hope and, and gives us resolve to tap into that resurrection power and in a way that enables us to shake our fists at sin and to stand resolved to live lives of, of holiness and reverence to you. So help us to that end and help us as fellow strugglers, fellow beggars, um, trying to find the bread to come alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ and our family members and uh, our friends to, to lead them toward this glorious reality of resurrection power in the here and now. And uh, help us to know how to minister that truth and that care and concern uh, to one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.